0: verdict brought to you by Sputnik Africa. You know what a brain is, and you know what blood clots are. Combine the two, and you get a stroke. Strokes remain a leading cause of death and disability worldwide, claiming more than 6 million lives each year. But despite its prevalence, many people still don't understand what exactly a stroke is, what the risk factors are, or how to reduce their risk. That's why today, in commemoration of World Stroke Day, I'm excited to speak with our guest, Dr. Patty Francis, an expert on the subject of strokes. She's a practicing neurologist who has been saving people for 11 years. She's also the president of the Stroke Association of South Africa and a member of the World Stroke Organization. Dr. Francis will help us understand this condition better and provide practical tips on how to prevent strokes from happening. So, if you're interested in learning more about strokes and ways to protect yourself and your loved ones, sit back, relax, and listen to our fascinating and informative conversation. Dr. Francis, welcome to the Afroverdick podcast. Thanks a lot for your time. Let's start with what are the most common risk factors for stroke and how can they be managed or controlled?
1: Well, throughout the world, globally, that is well established that. High blood pressure, hypertension, is the most common risk factor for stroke, and this is in all population groups. And people with hypertension are three to four times more likely to have a stroke than people with other risk factors or without hypertension. Then additional risk factors are diabetes, elevated lipids, such as cholesterol. In the sub-Saharan African um, context, HIV presents a unique and additional risk factor for stroke. Other infectious causes include TB and syphilis. Those infections are also predisposes to stroke, and they are more common in um, low socioeconomic countries, as well as a whole host of cardiac disorders, which increase the risk of having strokes as well, such as atrial fibrillation and other cardiac disorders.
0: And are there any preventative measures that individuals can take to reduce their risk of stroke?
1: Yes, all the, the um, risk factors that I mentioned are what are termed modifiable risk factors. So hypertension can be searched for in routine screening and it can be treated with medication as well as lifestyle uh, measures. I'll I'll talk about the lifestyle measures later because it's common to many of them. Similarly, diabetes can be tested for, can be treated with medication and lifestyle measures. Hypercholesterolemia can be tested for on a simple blood test and treated with medication, diet, and other lifestyle measures. HIV, as you know, is a blood test. Population screening for the infections like TB occurs routinely in populations that are predisposed to conditions like TB, and then for some of the cardiac disorders that predispose to stroke, there's more advanced testing, such as, for example, a 24-hour halter or a loop, which is a chip that's implanted and can record cardiac rhythms for up to five years, and then other cardiac investigations that are done in hospital, but population screening for hypertension, which is the world's leading cause of stroke, diabetes, um, cholesterol, those can be done without needing to be admitted to hospital or uh, too much of advanced equipment.
0: All right, and you said that you were going to speak about lifestyle measures. Could you expand on that?
1: So, so smoking contributes to all vascular disease, cardiac disease, strokes, and peripheral vascular disease. So smoking is a lifestyle measure that can assist in primary prevention, in preventing the first stroke, as well as in secondary prevention in people who have had a stroke and need to then prevent further strokes or recurrent strokes. Obesity is a common lifestyle factor that contributes to virtually all non-communicable diseases, which means non-infectious diseases. And there are um, parameters such as a body mass index, a BMI, which can be calculated per patient or per person, and um, guidance can be given as to how far over the recommended BMI there are, and um, dietary and exercise measures to reduce that. Similarly, for cholesterol, um, there's dietary and lifestyle measures to reduce it. Physical activity helps with all aspects of one's general health. Other risk factors that have been uh, documented and can be easily modified are low fruit and vegetable intake, where people just don't eat appropriately, and increasing one's vegetable intake. Um you know there's different things that dietitians teach people in terms of the different colors of vegetables, et cetera, to make it easy for them to know what to put on their plates. Alcohol consumption needs to be reduced for stroke prevention as well. And diabetes um, is also partly treated with dietary modification. So stop smoking stop alcohol as far as is humanly possible, decrease body mass index, increase exercise, increase fruit and vegetable intake. Those are modifiable risk factors. And then the non-modifiable ones are things like family history and genetic factors, which You know, people can't do anything about that, but the modifiable ones, they can do something about.
0: What about stress? Is stress in any way one of the maybe modifiable factors?
1: It is a modifiable factor. It's not a direct primary cause of stroke, but stress affects people's blood pressure control. Stress affects people's diabetes control. High cortisol pushes the sugar up. Stress affects people's need or desire to smoke um, trying to tell people who are highly stressed that they need to stop smoking is um, often uh, met with resistance. Um, stress affects people's desire or ability or time to exercise it's um, easier to recommend these things um, but not that easy for patients to always implement if if one, had to take into consideration the context of the African continent and the different countries. Um, the gyms are not so easily available. Gyms are not free of charge. There are costs attached to joining a gym. There are safety factors in what time after work does one go to gym or what time before work does one go to gym. Is it safe to be traveling home that late because you stopped to go to the gym? So There are many practical impediments to implementing these sorts of lifestyle changes and stress weighs into each of those factors. So it's not a direct cause of stroke, but it's certainly an important indirect contributor to all the direct causes.
0: Thanks a lot. Are there any other indirect factors that you're thinking of? No. Not? Okay, all right. Uh, What adaptations may be necessary for someone who has recently suffered a stroke And how can their quality of life be improved?
1: So, if someone has a stroke, firstly, I'm not sure if you have this in your um, lineup of questions, but the first thing is to recognize that someone is having a stroke. Now, unlike a heart attack, unlike a heart attack, which has one key symptom, which is chest pain. Um, a brain attack, which is basically what a stroke is. It's a reduction in the blood supply to a part of the brain. 85% of strokes are due to this mode of stroke, the reduction in blood supply to a part of the brain, which is called an ischemic stroke. And the remaining 15% are brain hemorrhages, which are called hemorrhagic strokes. So if we look at the 85% of strokes that are ischemic, then some of the signs of a developing, evolving, impending stroke are an asymmetry of the face, a droop of face, a weakness of the arm, a slurring of the speech, or a difficulty expressing words, and the T in the acronym FASD, stands for time. Time is of the essence. There's two other letters that have been added to this acronym, which is B for balance and E for eyesight, which is loss of vision in one eye or dimming of vision in one eye or double vision. So it's B-E-F-A-S-T, balance, eyesight, facial asymmetry, arm weakness, speech change, and T, time is of the essence, act fast. So first step is immediate early recognition of the stroke. Then the first line of treatment would be get the patient to the nearest stroke-ready center, and hopefully with processes that follow very rapidly, the clot that's causing the stroke can be dissolved or can be extracted. And that's called a hyperacute acute management of the stroke. Immediate complications of the stroke once that part has, phase, uh, has passed, that phase has passed, is to look at the swallowing of the patient and make sure that they don't develop a pneumonia, which is one of the commonest complications that results in a negative outcome. So assuming the patient has passed the hyperacute acute and the acute rehabilitation phase, The modifications to improve the quality of life of that individual would be, one, to improve mobility, whether that's by means of a walking cane or a walker, which is called a Zimmer frame, which can have wheels um, attached to it, or it can be without wheels. So one is to promote mobility, because promoting mobility helps all aspects of stroke survival. Then one has to look at safety factors within the home of the person if they are still living at home. So there's bathroom safety as well as safety within the home, safety outside in terms of steps and stairs and cobbles and things that they can't see clearly or can't navigate easily. So it's promoting mobility, promoting safe swallowing, preventing that aspiration pneumonia and then promoting safety in what's termed the ADLs. ADL stands for activities of daily living and promoting safety in all activities of daily living helps to improve the quality of life of the stroke survivor.
0: Are there any signs that can point out whether a person is going to suffer a stroke maybe in a couple of months, in a week, or do you need to have special testing to do that?
1: No, so a precursor for a stroke is referred to as a TIA. That's a transient ischemic attack. So this is symptoms that occurs in a person where they look like they might be having a stroke, for example, they might experience a little bit of a speech impairment or they might feel that their face is looking a bit droopy or feeling a bit tingly or their arm or their leg or they may feel that their vision is blurring a little bit, but it recovers quickly. And usually within seven days of this warning TIA, the patient will go on to have a stroke. There are different percentages for the first twenty-four hours after a TIA, first forty-eight hours after TIA, but up to seven days, there is a risk of this person who have these warning signs going on to have a stroke. So, as far as possible, we're trying to spread awareness that if anybody has any symptom falling into that category of the BEFAS, they should within the next few days seek urgent medical evaluation.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, Doc. Now, for example, if I myself notice that my speech is a bit slurred uh, or I can't see properly, what are my actions? Like I'm realizing now that I'm experiencing a stroke. What am I supposed to do?
1: So depending on where one is, in South Africa, uh, emergency number is 911 for the private sector and uh, there's another number for the public sector. What you need to do is dial the emergency number and get an ambulance to take you immediately to the nearest stroke-ready centre. Or if you've got a friend nearby, just say, please get me to the nearest hospital, you would know what your nearest hospital is. Ideally, if all our education campaigns succeed, we would like people to know which is their nearest stroke-ready hospital, as not all hospitals are geared for acute stroke evaluation and intervention. But in the absence of knowing which is your nearest stroke-ready hospital, just get to the nearest hospital. And the team there will know what to do.
0: So there's nothing that I can do basically to help myself, hey? It's all up to the doctors.
1: No, we we try as far as possible. Obviously, we're talking best case scenario. We are aware that there are many countries and many um, areas where there aren't hospitals that are readily available or readily accessible and there's transport issues, et cetera. So those people may need to go to the nearest clinic or the nearest GP, et cetera. But if you remember what I said earlier, that 85% of strokes are due to a clot in a blood vessel that's blocking blood supply to that part of the brain. There's no local clinic or no GP, however skilled they are, that can dissolve that clot. And the treatment of an acute stroke is to dissolve the clot or extract the clot, and that can only be done in a stroke-ready hospital. But what you could do as a first-line measure is to take a low dose of aspirin. Don't want to take too big a dose because there may be a risk if they use clot-dissolving medication should you be be having a stroke and get to a stroke-ready hospital. There's a small risk of There being some bleeding, so you don't want to increase the bleeding risk. But if one took a small dose of aspirin, um, it would help to decrease the clotting, the clot forming without increasing the bleeding risk.
0: All right. And what if I see my friend, for example, that's walking with me and he is starting to show symptoms of a stroke. Is there anything I can do to help him or is it all... Simply about calling emergency services as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, you want you want to get him to the nearest stroke-ready hospital in in under an hour. The clot um, dissolving medication has the best chance of breaking down that clot if it is administered in under one hour. The studies have shown that it can be given up to four and a half hours. In some cases, up to twenty uh, up to six hours. And more recently, there's some evidence even up to 24 hours, but we still know the most effective opportunity to dissolve the clot or extract the clot is within the first hour. And just to give you an example of why this is so important, scientific studies have shown that 2 million neurons die per minute that the blood, the brain is robbed of blood flow. So for every minute that that clot is sitting in that vessel, it's killing 2 million neurons downstream of it.
0: How significant is that number? I mean, for me, that has no medical education background. By all means, the number is huge, but I imagine there are millions or billions of neurons. How serious is this loss?
1: We have trillions of neurons, but the significance of a stroke doesn't depend only on the size or the total number of neurons that would be lost. It also depends on the location of the stroke. A small stroke in an eloquent area, such as the speech area of the brain, has devastating consequences compared to even a larger stroke in a non-eloquent area. So time is brain, and as far as possible, we want to prevent strokes primarily by screening for hypertension and all the risk factors we talked about and preventing people from having that first stroke. But should people, you know, hypertension is silent. People walk around with elevated blood pressures not knowing because the blood pressure has to be above a certain level to even cause a headache or cause dizziness. So at moderately elevated levels, blood pressure is silent and that is why it's dubbed a silent killer. So it's the screening programs that actually pick up these things. And um, you know, it's prudent for people to go and have blood pressure checked, glucose checked, cholesterol checked, stop smoking, stop alcohol. Those are things that are relatively easier to do than dealing with a stroke in the acute phase, trying to get to that care centre on time to dissolve the clot, and then all the rehabilitation and the life that is modified thereafter.
0: Thanks, doc. Just out of interest, you deal with strokes on a day-to-day basis. Is that right? Yes. And how many patients have you treated, more or less?
1: Uh, I can't tell you. I I can't tell you how many I have treated. Truly, it's countless. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's I've been doing acute stroke work for eleven years. And um, I I can't count the number of patients, but uh, the outcomes are excellent when they get to us on time. And they're very sad when they don't get to us on time.
0: Oh, no, I can imagine, of course. I mean, it's, uh, it's a terrible thing. Did you have any stroke cases that were abnormal? As in, they weren't the usual case of stroke?
1: What do you mean by that?
0: Like, to my understanding, stroke cases are mostly similar. As usually, like you said, a blood clot that is stuck somewhere. Uh, were there any cases that you faced that were not normal? Maybe a blood clot that was not stuck in the brain or in another place that you found unusual? Or am I taking our things too far?
1: So, so there are stroke mimics where people would have a droopy face and have weakness on one side of their body, for example. But they don't have a stroke by the mechanism that we've discussed. There isn't a clot occluding a blood vessel causing an ischemic stroke, neither do they have a brain hemorrhage. Some people have a tumor which can mimic a stroke. Other people can have a brain abscess that can mimic a stroke. Obviously, if a person has an accident that causes brain injury, that can externally look like the person has had a stroke. And then there's other... Temporary causes of stroke-like symptoms such as low blood sugar, hypoglycemia can mimic a stroke. And if a person has an epileptic fit, they can have a period of weakness of one side of their body that looks like a stroke. And then there's an unusual type of migraine called a hemiplegic migraine where the person looks like they have a stroke, but it's a type of a migraine. So those people are still investigated in exactly the same way because they look like they're having a stroke. So they will go through radiological scans, etc. and then it will show that, okay, they have a tumor or they have an abscess, or um, they would have a history of having had an epileptic fit before this um, weakness developed. Um, so yeah, there are things that can mimic a stroke and they're not actually a vascular stroke as such. And then if you're talking about unusual causes of stroke, yes, um, especially in young people, they do have unusual causes of stroke, um, such as the infections I mentioned. And then young women who are on the contraceptive pill, they are prone to developing um, strokes caused by the oral contraceptive pill. Usually there's at least one other predisposing factor which they don't know about because they're still too young to have gone for any blood test to check predisposing factors such as autoimmune diseases but yes women who have autoimmune diseases and then take the oral contraceptive pill they can develop a stroke from that.
0: All right, no that satisfied my question completely. Thanks. We've spoken about the medical interventions. Uh, you said that they usually remove the blood clots surgically or the patient ingests special medication to dissolve the blood clot. Did I get that right?
1: No. Uh, the, the process of dissolving the clot is called thrombolysis, and that's done by injecting uh, thrombolytic medication through a drip. And, <clears throat> excuse me. There's two ways of doing it. One is a one-hour infusion, and the other is a shorter injection. So that's thrombolysis where medication to dissolve the clot is administered. And then the extraction of the clot is called mechanical thrombectomy, which is a surgical procedure. It's not open surgery. The various devices are introduced directly via the arterial system. And the clot is either dissolved or um, aspirated, suctioned, um, or it can be extracted. So, they are different devices that either extract or aspirate the clots in the thrombectomy.
0: Okay. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. How can stroke survivors work to prevent future episodes or complications such as the secondary strokes or additional health issues that they could have?
1: So, once again, they need to continue medical follow-up. Managing all their risk factors. And then your question about stress comes into it because people who have strokes do have post stroke depression. And that's not just reactive to the loss of function or loss of their occupation or loss of their identity, Um, it's also a biological process due to the damage in the brain. So, managing the medical factors that Caused the stroke in the first place, managing their lifestyle factors, these individuals are often far less mobile. So exercising, losing weight, not smoking, not having alcohol, those factors become even more relevant in a less mobile stroke survivor. And um, of course, dealing with their depression as well, there's economic loss and extra economic burden because the individual with a stroke may or may not be able to return to their former employment. And if they're unable to return to their former employment, they then may need to rely on a disability pension. The government disability pensions are very low compared to a person's salary. And then if they need care, they need to pay a caregiver to help look after them or someone from their family needs to stop working to help look after them. So there's a, a significant economic burden following a stroke.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is quite unfortunate that people have to deal with these things, but I guess that's just life, Hey, eh? Can you tell us about the advancements or innovations that are currently being made in stroke research and treatment?
1: So the the treatment with the clot-dissolving medication as well as mechanical thrombectomy. So thrombolysis and thrombectomy are recent, and uh, particularly thrombectomy, is the most recent um, innovation in actually treating the cause of the stroke or treating the culprit in the stroke. Um, No matter how much rehabilitation is done after a person has a stroke, once the loss of that part of the brain has occurred, that deficit is going to be permanent. So the most important innovation that has occurred is in thrombolysis and thrombectomy. However, an important branch of research is in rehabilitating or restoring neuronal function in the areas that have been damaged and are not dead, and that's called neurorestoration and neuroplasticity. And there are one or two uh, modalities of treatment or one or two compounds that have been developed and have been trialed and are continuing to be trialed to improve how the brain itself restores connections, reforms connections, which are called synapses, between uh, healthy neurons and neurons that have survived the insult. So that whole area of restoring good brain health in the damaged areas is something that we would like to see more of, but we don't have enough of at the moment.
0: All right, Doc, thanks a lot for joining me in this late hour after work. Uh, I can only imagine how tired you are, but really appreciate the effort and time for you agreeing to come online and share these insightful tips with our audience.
1: Thank you. It's I never missed the opportunity when asked to talk about this because we really need people to get the message that stroke is a brain emergency. And of note is the fact that stroke is the second leading cause of death in South Africa, second only to HIV. It's the leading cause of disability worldwide and Second leading cause of death in South Africa, third leading cause of death worldwide, second leading cause of death in South Africa. So it is an emergency. It's something that needs to be taken more seriously by the public at large and um, yeah, um, spread the word.
0: Dear listeners, Please be vigilant when it comes to your well-being and taking care of yourself. Smoking, alcohol, diabetes, high blood pressure, all these factors increase your risk of getting a stroke. Now, To reduce this risk, eat healthy food, be active, jump on a treadmill, get involved in sports, take a walk at least but get that blood pumping. And if you notice symptoms like half of the face drooping, tingling extremities, slurred speech or blurred eyesight get to a hospital ASAP don't waste time on thinking whether it's a stroke or not rather be safe than sorry and then of course I want to take this opportunity to say thank you to all the doctors out there who dedicate their lives in order to keep you and me healthy and alive if you know a doctor personally go say thanks I'm sure it will mean the world to them if you miss something go ahead and re-listen to this podcast on any platform ranging from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Podcast Addict, AfriPods, Pocket Cast and CastBox. For the latest highlights on significant events happening across the continent and globally, visit our Sputnik Africa Telegram channel, TikTok account and other social media. If you don't like constantly tapping links and opening new tabs on your device, then simply download the Sputnik Africa application. It's a user-friendly app and it will save you both time and effort. That's all for today's episode, everyone. I look forward to seeing you all next week and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Afro Verdict brought to you by Sputnik Africa.